God, we want to hear your voice speak to our hearts tonight. And we want to be uh, conformed to your image. We want to be more like Jesus. And so we pray that as we read your words that you have written for us, that we would, uh, that we would grow, that we would be challenged and corrected and, and uh, made more aware of who you are, and that that would drive the response of our hearts. And so we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So tonight we begin uh, the book that's known as First Peter. And really right out of the gate, he's going to open it up, much like Paul does in his letters. He's going to say, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so before we even get into that, though, once you know that Peter's writing this, there's so much context there for the believer. There's so many uh, sort of bones to this story, if you will. Because Peter is a man who, who spent his entire life learning that God did not need his help. Okay, when we see Peter, he shows up in the Gospels, and he shows up as really a failure. He, he has failed to catch fish. He has failed at his profession, his occupation. And Jesus says, tell you what, why don't you come and follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. And it's not because Peter was the best fisherman. It's actually... Uh, you could potentially argue because maybe he was the worst fisherman. Jesus, in his grace, saved him and, uh, from, from a depressing career. And Peter wound up walking with Jesus for three, three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And in that time, he, uh, he had an opportunity to see incredible things that really nobody in history has ever gotten to see. But even that, even the, uh, the experience, the thrill, the the challenge and all the, all the good that came along with it was not enough to strengthen Peter. Uh, the, night that Jesus was, the night before Jesus was crucified, right, we know the story that Peter is intimidated by a teenage girl into denying that he knows Jesus Christ. And to the point that we're actually told he's swearing and cursing in his attempts to deny that he knows Jesus Christ. Peter, Peter has uh, more given to him and in a sense gives a worse return than really anybody else we have a record of in the scriptures. And that's, uh, that's a fascinating start to this guy's ministry because what's going to happen is after Jesus rises from the dead, he's going to restore his relationship with Peter. Peter's going to get restored, and the Lord's going to basically say, you know what, what you do is not important, what I do is. And Peter is going to go then from a guy who, who fails even at cutting off a guy's head in the garden he missed and, and just got a piece of the ear and 40 days later, Peter gets baptized with the Holy Spirit. He receives the power of God. And a man who couldn't cut off one man's head stands up and gives a sermon. And we're told that 3,000 people get cut to the heart by his words, and, and they're saved that day. And so Peter's a man who, who understands coming to the end of himself. He understands restoration with God. He understands falling short in his own efforts. And he understands the power of God at work in the life of a believer. And now this book is written later on. At this point, Peter has been in ministry serving the Lord. Um, we believe he probably wound up going to Rome and, and serving there. But, um, but Peter's just been, he's been serving the Lord his whole life. Peter's going to die in the service of the Lord. And so what we have is the book written by a guy who understands the gospel. He understands the gospel is just the Greek word for good news. Peter understands good news on a level that most people don't. Because Peter understands the awareness of, I just rejected God in a very personal way. Most of us, when we reject God, it's, it's more abstract. And we don't, we don't live with the consequences so immediately. But Peter understood better than probably almost anybody, I think, uh, the rejection that he had delivered to God and then the restoration that God had delivered to him. And so Peter, as he writes this letter, writes with a in a depth and a breadth of experience and maturity that is just incredibly, incredibly profound in the life of the believer. And so I was telling Malachi before we started, I said, listen, First and Second Peter, they're not the two best books of the Bible. He goes, but they're close. I said, yeah, they're definitely in the top 66. Um, but they really are. They're, they're, they're fantastic books, okay? And there's so much application here. Um, so... As we we got to get that out. We sort of have to understand before we even start reading the book, who is the guy who's writing this book? Because that shapes the context. So he opens up, and basically tonight he's going to sort of give us three chunks, if you will, um, and we'll 
We're not going to finish all the third chunk because it winds up being in chapter 3. But basically, he's going to start off talking about the glory of the gospel, the glory of our salvation, and the fact that God has saved us. And then he's going to transition into talking about how we should walk in holiness as a result of that. And then he's going to transition again and start talking about submission in the life of the believer. And, and the idea that a believer is not called to live life in their own strength for their own ends. And so he starts off, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, such Christians who have been scattered all over the world, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So notice, right as he opens up, Peter does something. He, he, he reminds us that the entire Trinity, the, the fullness of God, is at work in our lives. He says, you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Election, we've talked about it a lot this year. Um, it's never supposed to be a disturbing thought. It's always meant to be a comforting assurance to the believer. If you believe in Jesus Christ, it means God has chosen you. And that means that it is not dependent upon you to maintain your salvation. Because God has chosen you, he is able to sustain you. So we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. In sanctification of the Spirit, the Spirit of God is in the process of, of sanctifying us, of making us holy. He's in an active relationship with us, and it's through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood brings us into relationship with God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit empowers us to continue walking in that relationship. And so it's important because sometimes we get this idea, if we're not careful, that God, like we know he's the Trinity, but we sort of assume that, like, well, yeah, but only one part matters. No, Peter's here saying, look, the entire Trinity is at work in your sanctification and in the work that God is doing in your life. So he says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He's writing a letter here. He's writing a letter to Christians, but he doesn't start off by saying, hey guys, here's what I want to talk about. He starts off by saying, hey, isn't God amazing? He says, blessed be the God who has begotten us again to a living hope. He says, blessed be the God who has begotten us to an inheritance, verse 4, that is reserved in heaven, that is kept by the power of God, verse 5. Peter says, look, we'll get, to the, we'll get to the things that we need to do. We'll get to who we need to be. We'll get to what God wants you to, what he wants your life to look like. But Peter starts off, and we in our lives should start off with what has God already done? And then in that, we should start off by praising God for what he has already done. Blessing the Lord. By, by blessing his heart in the same way that a child blesses their parents, by attempting to show devotion, right? It's often not the quality of the gift that the child brings to the parent. It's the heart behind it, that the child is secure in their parents' love and they want to demonstrate that to their parents. And so it's the same idea. We bless the Lord by responding to him as his children because really, if you think about a child and a parent, who is the greater giver in the relationship, right? By the time your child gives you a gift, by the time your five-year-old brings you a gift, it costs all of you know, $10, probably that you already paid them. Um, so they're giving you $10. How much have you given them at that point? Like, it's not, even, it's not even comparable, right? I mean, just the amount of effort and labor and money and time and energy and, and, and sweat equity that you have poured into that child, and they have the audacity to give you a $10 gift. But parents don't see it that way because they're blessed by their children wanting to have a relationship with them. And so Peter says, hey, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord who has, who has given us. He's not going to focus on our gift to God. He's going to talk about God's gift to us. God has given us all these things. He's begotten us. That means like he's given birth to us again. You've been born physically. But if you're a Christian, you've been born again spiritually. You have spiritually come out of a womb of darkness and sin into life through Jesus Christ. And so now you have not just life, you have an inheritance. There are promises and riches waiting for you on the other side of this life that you can't even imagine yet. In verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, 
Though, now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, you love, though you now do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So here we see that Peter is writing to a church that is in distress, to Christians that are in persecution. And that's, and that's really important because if you, if you were to write a letter to someone who's discouraged, how would you start it? Like, hey man, I know life is rough. Hey, I know you've had a bad run the last little while. Hey, I know things haven't been fair. I know things have been going rough. Peter does not start his letter that way. He says, hey, blessed be God who has saved us. And then he says, in this we are greatly rejoicing, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Christianity never denies the reality of pain, never denies the reality of suffering, never denies the reality that some people have brutally hard lives and that from any earthly metric, it's not fair. But Christianity never denies the fact that there's a much greater world than we can see. And there's a much greater system of sowing and reaping and in consequence and reward than we can ever see. And that in the eyes of eternity, in the eyes of Jesus Christ, 50, 60, 70, 80 years of suffering are nothing compared to an eternity of glory. And so Peter is able to say, he's able to say with emphasis and with authority, we're greatly rejoicing, even if we're being grieved by various trials. It's the incredible thing about Christianity is we can grieve and rejoice at the same time. We can experience pain and joy simultaneously. Because Christianity is not a religion that seeks to make us happy. It is a religion that makes us joyful. Right? Happiness is based on your circumstances right here. What is, what is going on right now? Did a good thing happen to me right now? And if it did, I feel good about it. That's happiness. Happiness is lame. Okay? Because if circumstances change, happiness is gone. Joy is God has given me so much that no matter what comes my way, I still have assurances of the things that really matter. That's a whole different proposition. Happiness is because of your circumstances. Joy is often in spite of your circumstances. And so Peter says, we rejoice. We have joy in this, even though, yes, we do have hardship. But that is nothing compared to the joy that we have. Verse 10, he says, of this salvation, speaking of this, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. He says this, this salvation, salvation through Jesus Christ, is something that people for thousands of years before you have wanted to see. And the Spirit of God that was in them is in you, but the Spirit of God that was in them was, looking, was causing them to look forward and say, man, I wish I understood. I wish I could see. What does this look like? Isaiah's talking about you know, a servant who's the Messiah and a king who's the Messiah, and how does that work? And, and, and there's all this trying to understand, and Peter's saying, you are on the, the back end of it. You get to see it. You get to look at Isaiah and say, wow, that prophecy that said a virgin will conceive and bear a son was actually literal. As opposed to hundreds of years or thousands, hundreds of years for Isaiah, uh, of, of people who read it and said, what does that mean? And, and is that literal? Like, it can't, surely can't be, but maybe. And is it metaphorical? Peter says, you've been given a gift in this salvation that you get to see with the greater clarity than anybody has seen prior. This is written from the guy who got to see Jesus. This is the guy who actually, this is the only human being other than Jesus Christ who walked on water. Okay, he, he, had, he had enough faith to do some crazy things. His faith was not always confidence. He couldn't stand up to a teenage girl, but he could walk on water because he believed that Jesus could make him do it. He got to hand out the food to the 5,000. He got to watch Jairus' daughter come back to life, and he says, you guys have no idea what you're getting because you're on the back end of this. And so he goes on. He says, verse 12, to them, to the prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So he says, the Lord used them, and they didn't get to see the full reward of how the Lord was using them. 
right? Isaiah wrote prophecies that he, he died not understanding. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, Hosea, they all wrote things down by the Spirit of God that they died not comprehending. And he's tying that into our suffering and saying the same Spirit's at work. It's okay. It's not fun. It's not pleasurable, but it's okay to die not understanding why we've gone through some of the things we've gone through. As long as we understand who Jesus Christ is and the work that the Holy Spirit is doing and the fellowship that we get to have with God the Father. Nothing else matters. And so in this we greatly rejoice, even though if now we've been grieved for a while by various trials. Peter says it's just like the Old Testament prophets were part of something that they didn't fully comprehend and think of the blessing that you're receiving from it right now. You're part of something. Our lives, this church, this, this community is part of something and we may not fully comprehend it and that's okay. Because blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who is, according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. And then he comments just at the end. It's always interesting. He says, these are things which angels desire to look into. Angels don't, he's, he's talking about grace, the idea that God has saved us. Angels don't comprehend grace in the same way that we do. It's, it's an interesting thought because angels, Jesus didn't die for the angels. Angels, they're, they're a different kind of being. They're not humans. And so it, it's a different sort of experience. I don't I have no idea what it's like to be an angel, so I don't, I'm not going to pretend. But the angels had an, a specific opportunity when Satan rebelled to either stay with the Lord or join with Satan. And those that uh, that left will be punished eternally. Those that stayed get to experience fellowship with Christ uninterrupted. But they don't experience grace. Angels don't know what it's like to have walked away from the Lord and come back. Which is interesting because it means that angels don't understand certain parts of God's character in, this, in the same way that we've been given the ability to understand. Which also means that there are parts of God's character that we have no ability to comprehend right now. God has, there are things about God that we just can't even, like, compute. Not even like you don't understand them, just like you have no framework for even understanding where they start. And it's important to just, it's sometimes that's kind of like a big, it's a little bit of a spacey thought. But it's important, I think, to understand that God is way bigger than we give him credit for. Right? There are things God is doing, and if God is in charge of things, and if he's maneuvering things at a level that you can't possibly comprehend, but he also tells you, I care about you as an individual, then maybe he knows what our circumstance is. Maybe he knows what our situation is. Maybe he's actually in charge and not losing control. And so in verse 13, Peter's going to start to transition. And he does it by the word, therefore. Which, when you come to it in scriptures, if you're reading the word of God on your own time, you get to the word, therefore, you should ask yourself, what is that word, therefore? Because you want to understand the context of what we're about to read. So therefore... Because of our salvation, because of what God has done, because of who God is, because he's working in our lives. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Peter's starting to make an application about the character of God. If God is who he says he is, if these things about God are true, then our behavior should be changed. And specifically, if God is who he says he is, Peter says, then we should be holy. But he doesn't pin holiness on our efforts. He pins it on resting fully upon the grace. So he's, he's talking about you need to be holy. And Peter's book, books, plural, put a lot of emphasis on personal holiness in the life of the believer. But they never do it in the believer's own strength. They're always tied into the holiness of God. So he's going to exhort us here to be holy. Really from chapter 1 verse 13 through chapter 2 verse 3. Okay, and he's going to exhort us to do it a couple ways. The first is to rest fully on the grace of God. If you want to be holy, you need to be dependent on grace. Because grace, like we talked about in the book of Romans, in chapter 5, in chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, grace is about understanding that God is giving us power. Not just the power, the power to not have to sin, the power to follow after him. 
Our relationship with God is not based on our efforts. It's based on receiving his power. And the grace of God brings us into contact with his power. So if you lack power in your life, go back to grace. And then he's going to go on. And he's actually, he's going to kind of stay there for a second. And we'll get down to in verse 17. He says, and if, still talking about holiness, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So talking about holiness, Peter always, he ties it back in, and all of Scripture does this. Holiness in the life of the believer, when God calls us to holiness, he always connects it back to the holiness of Christ. He says, you should be holy because think about what was spent to purchase you. The blood of Jesus Christ was the currency. It was the only currency that would work to buy you back. Your sins had separated you from God and there was a cost because the holiness of God is so pure that nothing can defile it. The only way for redemption to happen was through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I will pay that. I will pay the currency of my blood. And Peter says, don't forget that. You weren't redeemed with trash like silver and gold. Peter's making a contrast here. The most valuable things we can think of in the world are worthless compared to the holiness of Christ. Peter says, you know, if, if, if your life was ransomed, okay, you're, so you're kidnapped and held hostage or whatever, and then they ransom you for whatever you think you're worth or whatever they think you're worth, um, and let's say the ransom's all in gold coins. And somebody stepped up and, and offered to pay it, and they had the gold coins on hand or whatever. I don't have any friends, I don't think, who have that kind of gold coinage on hand just because gold's ridiculous right now. So don't kidnap me for, for money. There, there's no, nothing to be had there. But if somebody ransomed you with gold, you'd, you'd probably feel a little bit of a debt of obligation, right? Well, how much more if the holiness of God ransomed you with his blood? That's Peter's point. Of course, of course grace should drive our behavior. Grace is never an excuse to do what we want. It's an excuse to grow in holiness because we comprehend the depth God went to to give us his grace. So verse 22, continuing the thought, since, because of that, because of the holiness of God, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren... Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So, Peter's first application. You want to be holy. You, you, you understand grace. You understand the character of God. You, you, you realize, okay, Jesus Christ is holy and he saved me, so I want to be holy. What, what is a good next step? Peter says, you know what you ought to do? Love one another. And we think, I was hoping for something a little more um, ambitious even, right? Like it, it's just a little, it's a bit of a downer, right? Like you kind of like, you know, go on a, on a, on a quest and, and traverse the world and, and spread the gospel and like, no, love people. Love like one, love one another specifically. Love other Christians. Dang, because if you're in the church, if if you're with other believers on a regular basis, you know something, and that is that Christians are not the most lovable people. Because God has saved us, but that does not mean that He is done working on us, right? And so Christians get weird attitudes. And weird ideas. And they don't like you, and you don't like them. And you're like, you know what? Why don't you just start a church split, and I'll start a church split, and we can all be happy. And Peter says, no. I want you to love one another. The, the, the connection, Peter draws a, a direct line connection between our response to the holiness of God and our willingness 
to love people, and specifically the people right in front of us. And he even ties it in to the Word of God. He says, if you want to know the Word of God, it's going to drive your love for other people. Now this, end of verse 25, end of the chapter, he says, now this is the Word which by the Gospel is preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So he connects these ideas of you should love one another because you've been saved, and because you've been saved, you should be in the Word of God. He connects salvation and the Word of God. And it's interesting because so often we think of salvation as a one-time event, which it, which it truly is. There's a point at which you weren't saved and then a point at which you are saved. But it, salvation is also an active truth because you are being saved. The Lord is teaching you how to put to death your flesh and how to, how to walk in the, in the spirit of life. And so there's a process where, in a sense, not to say that you're always losing your salvation, but you're always being saved. Being saved is, is an act of truth, and Peter connects it to the Word of God. If you want to be continually being saved, you need to know the Word of God. And that's why, as a church, we place such emphasis on the Word of God. Our church really it does has... Two things that we care about, the Word of God and the Spirit of God, in terms of practical application in the life of the Christian, okay? We believe that Jesus Christ saved us to bring us in a relationship with God the Father, and we believe that in the, in the world we're in now, if we want to live effective lives, we need two things. We need the Word of God to teach us and the Spirit of God to empower us, and Peter connects that. He connects salvation with the Word of God. If you want to know what God wants you to do, if you want to say, okay, I understand that God has saved me. I understand that grace has come, that Jesus Christ is holy. What should I do? If you want to know what is the will of God for my life, read the word of God. He has, as one pastor says, God has texted you. Open the text. Okay? If, if somebody sends you a message and you want to know what it says, what do you do? You open it up and you read it. It doesn't matter if it's an email or a text, or, or whatever else, or a letter. They still send them sometimes. God has sent you a message. And, it, and he tells us that in his message, he tells us everything he wants from us. He tells us everything that he wants us to do. And what we do sometimes is we close it and we say, God, I just need you to speak to me. Right? God, just tell me what to do. Tell, tell, tell. Find the, find the right pitch, right? Tell me what to do. And he says, yeah, I'm telling you, open it up and read it. Know the word of God. If you want to be effective in, in your life as a Christian, know the word of God. And now, as Peter, so he's connecting sort of, so, you know, I said we're kind of moving through chunks, okay? So the first chunk is the glory of our salvation. And the second chunk is our response to the holiness of God. And specifically in that, we respond by resting our hope in the grace of God, by loving one another, and by desiring the word of God. But now he's going to start to transition again. And he's going to talk about everybody's favorite subject, which is submission. And he's really, so tonight we're going to get through like halfway through this trunk. Because he, he's going to uh, wind up taking it all the way through chapter 3, verse 12. We're just going to get up to the end of chapter 2. But he's going to talk about basically our submission to God. Our submission to government. Our submission to masters or, or people in authority over us. And then he's going to go into more personal relationships and our submission to other people. And, uh, and specifically in marriage, but in a, in a broader context as well. So we're going to start off talking about submission to God. Coming to him, chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him as, a living, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed, but Verse 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him 
who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. It's a big chunk, but Peter's he's, he's tying a big idea in here, and he's going back to Old Testament references that refer to the Messiah. And so in our understanding, they're referring to Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. And, and when a stone building is built, so I understand, um, there's a sort of a cent- there's a critical stone that distributes the weight evenly and builds up everything else around it. Okay, it's sort of the linchpin, if you will, of a project. And the scriptures use the metaphor that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. It actually goes back in either Jewish history or Jewish tradition, depending on, on your source, um, to when they were building the temple, they received a stone from the quarry that they couldn't figure out where it went, and so they threw it over the hill. And then they got time to actually start laying the stones, and they could not find the main stone that they needed. And they sent to the quarry and said, where's the cornerstone? And they said, uh, we already sent it to you. And they said, no, you didn't. And they said, yeah, we did. Check the files. And they realized, oh, the stone that we couldn't figure out what to do with it is actually the most important stone in the entire building. And it becomes a metaphor for the role of Jesus Christ in the Jewish nation and the idea that he was rejected the first time he came, but he'll be accepted by them the second time he comes. But the bigger idea here is that if God is who he says he is, and if Jesus is who he says he is, then he's building us up into something. And so we're coming to him as, Peter says, living stones. Okay, and we're being built on a foundation that Jesus Christ is central to. Okay, everything about our lives needs to hinge on Jesus Christ. And it's important because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so in a, in a metaphorical sense, if there's a church and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and you're part of that building, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you decide to build your own shed off to the side, gates of hell just might prevail against that one. So we need to be submitted, Peter's saying, to Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. We need to be submitted to God first and foremost in everything. Our response to holiness needs to be, what does God want? And it's sometimes easy to understand and sometimes not so easy to apply because oftentimes what God wants is for us to deny ourselves because God is not really interested in us showing that we're awesome. But here's the irony. Jesus said in the Gospels that the first would be last and the last would be first. If anyone wishes to be exalted, he should humble himself. If anyone exalts himself, he'll be humble. Peter says here, if you are built on the foundation of Christ, there's a sense where you feel like you've lost your autonomy. You just become another brick in the pile, right? And just like, whatever, you know? I mean, I don't, I don't look at, you don't go to monuments and pick out like, what's my favorite brick? You know, you, you appreciate the monument for the whole. And so there's a feeling of, oh, I'm going to lose my autonomy if I really surrender to the Lord. And then he might ask me to do something that makes me uncomfortable, like love one another. And Peter says, when that happens, the greatest freedom you can find and the greatest glory you'll ever find is in letting go of yourself. Letting go of your desire for self-promotion. Because he says, you are, verse 9, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are an incredible part of God's plan, but only if you're submitted to God's plan, right? You cannot be an incredible part of God's plan and your plan. You have to make a choice. Do I want to be part of God's plan? And it will feel, there will be, a, there will be a, oftentimes a, a breaking point of like, man, I just feel like I'm, I'm giving up on everything. And that's when you find everything, right? That, that, that's when... When that threshold is crossed of, you know what, I am willing to let my own desires die, that's where real life happens. And he's going to sort of carry that idea out now as he's talking about submission in the rest of these chunks. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now this is a verse that wasn't really controversial until, um, at least in the States, until you had mask mandates. And then all of a sudden everybody just flipped out of this verse. But here's where Peter's going. And I, and I want us to, to, you always want to be very, very careful when you get to a passage that a lot of people are quoting often, that you're understanding the context, and that you're not over-interpreting, and that you're also not under-interpreting to try and make a counterpoint. So here's what Peter says. He says, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, to abstain from fleshly lust and have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. He says, please don't do anything stupid that would make unbelievers decide that being a Christian is a waste. So if we just start, if we, if we just got that part down, we, we'd be doing well as the church, right? Like, like the church is 2,000 years in. You would think maybe we could kind of start to get the hang of this one, but we just haven't really picked up a lot of momentum. Our, our, so he says, abstain from fleshly lust. Why? Because this is not your home. Your goal is not to get everything out of this life that you can because this is not real life. Okay, this is not the real world. It's very real. And the souls in it are very real, but everything except the souls in it is passing away. So this is not the real world. So he says, you're passing through. Don't do anything stupid on your way out. Okay, and then in the context of submission, he connects it to submission to government. And he says, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king or to governors. And so he's saying, look, I want you to submit to human government. And contextually, he's writing this while Rome is in office. Okay? Rome is in power, and you can, you can study it. Rome wasn't known for their, uh, you know, their freedom of the press and, and just the, you know, the massive liberties that Christians experienced in the early era of the church. But there's another thing he says. He says, as free... And yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. So, again, we said we don't want to over-interpret and we don't want to under-interpret. So here's what Peter's, so we're going to try and do both of those things. We're trying to not do both of those things and do them in a balanced way. He says, all right, listen, you're passing through. This world is not your home. So don't do anything stupid. And along the way, I want you to be submitted to government. Because God has allowed human government to exist as a means of, of putting a sort of a cap on evil. And you look at governments and you think, no, no, governments are evil. Oh, no, governments are evil. But they do help restrain evil, right? I'd rather have an evil government than have no government at all. But he says, also, I still want you to walk as free men. But I don't want you to use liberty as a cloak for vice. So here's what he's saying. And, and, this, is, and this is important, too. We need to understand it in the context of all scriptures. This is in context of verses like Romans 13. This is also in context of biblical examples like Daniel, uh, like the midwives in the book of Exodus. And, and there, are, there are lots of uh, revered examples in the scriptures of people who practice civil disobedience. So we need to sort of figure out what is he saying. And here's, I think, here's, here's what the scripture is saying. Obey the government whenever possible. Obeying the government is not about your convenience. It is not about what makes you happy. It's about God has let this government exist. And he has told me to obey it. But you always obey sequentially. You obey the, you know, and we understand this inherently. Um, there's always a chain of command, right? And, and if a middle line of the chain of command is flagrantly violating what the upper command has explicitly told us, you better do what the boss says, right? If the boss comes to you and says, I want this to happen, and the manager comes and says, I don't want this to happen, eh, it might get tense, but probably you ought to do what the boss said, right? Because he's what? The boss, right? And so we have kings and governors, and we have human government here on earth, but that is not our highest form of government because we are subject to a heavenly kingdom. And so don't do anything stupid. Don't uh, submit to government whenever possible, but understand that government is not your God. And government is not your king. 
but they are put in place by God. So he says, I want you to walk as free men. You are not slaves to the government. You're free. You should act like free people. But never use your freedom as a cloak for vice. Never use it as an, as an opportunity to just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use some quote-unquote conviction as an opportunity to do what I want. Okay, and, and I'm going to... I'm actually going to tread some very thin ice because dad's not here tonight. And so he doesn't have that, he's not doing that thing where he sits in the back row and kind of looks. And then kind of, there's like a metric I can gauge, like I went too far. Um, but he's not here, so I may just go way too far. But here's the deal. If you're looking for practical application, okay, think back to the COVID-19 pandemic. And understand that that was, it was a really kind of profound era of Christians in America trying to sort out what does the scripture say about submission to government? Because you had all kinds of orders coming out. You had all kinds of opinions coming out. You had all kinds of facts coming out. And there was a massive scramble of what do we believe and who do we trust. And, and here's, the, here's the big picture that I want us to get from this. And that is that what comes before Peter talks about submission to government? Submission to God. Right? And this is where you got to be careful when you start talking about application because you don't want to... Uh, you don't want to start running in blanket statements. But here's the thing. Peter says, be submitted to the government. Some governors in our states said, oh, these, these are laws. You're not allowed to sing in church. And some churches said, oh, First Peter 2, got to obey the government. Some churches said, well, actually, God told us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so we will sing in church. Some churches said, uh, the government, some government governors said, you can't meet. And some people said, oh. First Peter 2, Romans 13, we can't meet. Some pastors said, no, Scripture says, do not forsake the assembling of the brethren. We are going to gather together. And some pastors said, if we open up, this is an awesome chance to pick off some fresh revenue because there are people looking for church. Some people walked as free men because they were serving a higher king. Some people walked as free men because they were using liberty as a cloak for vice. Right? I remember, you know, you would listen to or read these opinion pieces on should people wear masks? And some Christians said, you know what? Out of sensitivity to other brothers and sisters who are either at risk or who are very concerned, I'm going to wear a mask. Some Christians said, you know what? As a means of, of defending the, uh, the role of the people as the form of government that we have, I'm going to choose not to wear a mask. And some people said, I'm an American and you can't tell me what to do. So it's, it's like, well, wait a second. And I heard, I heard, you know, very serious Christians explain why they weren't using a mask and, and preface it by, well, I'm an American. I'm like, I don't give a rip if you're an American or not. That shouldn't have anything to do with this conversation. I care about what is God telling you to do. Right? And I'm okay saying that if you are submitted to God, he will clarify it to you. And it may not be exactly what he says to me. Okay, when, when, when vaccines came out, there was a lot of controversy, particularly in the church, about what should you do. And there were Christians who said, you know what? I'm not going to take that because I'm concerned about certain health effects. There were Christians who said, I'm not going to take that because it's stupid. There were Christians who said, I'm going to take it. Because I am terrified, and I'm living my life in fear. And there were Christians who said, you know what, I'm going to take it because I think this is what the Lord is telling me to do. Which one was right? Should they have gotten the jab, or should they have not? And what's the answer? They should have submitted to God. And said, God, what do you want me to do? And the Lord clarifies. Right? I know people who love the Lord dearly and chose not to get the vaccine. And I say, God bless them. I know people who love the Lord dearly and chose to get it because they said, you know what, we're called to a specific ministry. I know, I know a hospital chaplain who said, God told me to get the vaccine because my ministry is to people in the hospital and the hospital will not let me in the door unless I have the vaccine. So I'll, he's like, I'm scared about the health effects, but I'm going to take the risk because God told me to do it. I know s at least two missionary families who received the vaccine and did not want to because they said, God has called us to this country and in this country, the only way we can get in is if we have a vaccine passport. So was it foolish for them to get the vaccine? No, not at all. It was completely the right thing to do if, if, because they're walking in submission to the Lord. 
There were pe- but there were people who got vaccinated strictly out of fear. Was that a wise choice? No. Because nothing a Christian does should be motivated by fear. There are people who refuse to get vaccinated strictly out of fear. Right? It was so funny to watch, honestly, if, if you could sort of divorce yourself from the stress of it. Because there were so many, like, bad arguments played out on extremes, both sides, right? Like, you could, you could just kind of listen to these, like, why did you get vaccinated? Well, because we're all going to die if we don't. Okay? Why didn't you get vaccinated? Well, because we're all going to die if we do. And it's like, huh. It's like the exact same thing, just from a different perspective. And so, and, and so it's important to understand this because, and I, and I know I picked something that's a little bit controversial, but it's very real. And we all have very good experience, and we can all think back in our minds to, okay, how do I walk through submission to government? And the answer is you, you always remember that you have a higher king. And when possible, you submit to your human government. But if your government calls you to do something, it is contrary to what God is telling you to do. Not contrary to what you want or what you feel like or what makes you happy, but contrary to what God is calling you to do, then you have an obligation to disobey your government. You have an obligation to say, I'm sorry, but you are not my first line of allegiance. And, and, but he does end this passage. He says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. He does not say obey the king. You are not called to obey government in every explicit circumstance, but Peter specifically instructs us to honor those in authority. There's never grounds for a Christian to, to be sassy about their government. Okay, I, 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 there's, a, there's a pastor who I listen to quite often, and he was one of the very early ones to reopen his church as a, as a conviction from the Lord. And he warned his church. He was in a state that was clamping down pretty hard on religious freedoms. And I remember listening to the podcast when he warned his church. He said, look, we're opening up. And I was talked to the sheriff, and there's a chance he may be instructed to come down and arrest me in the middle of a Sunday morning service. And he, said, he told his church, he said, if that happens, we are going to be respectful. And we're going to tell them, thank you for doing your duty, and we are going to let them arrest me. And I don't want anybody in this church getting out of line if they come to arrest me. They never did, but it was, it was a great picture of, I am going to stand in defiance of the government, but I will be honorable. And then he goes on, and he ties in, and I don't want to say it doesn't apply as much, because it does, but he's sort of connecting here specifically the idea of people who are in slavery or in uh, sort of oppressive employment. And he says, servants, verse 18, be submissive to your masters with, with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it? If when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, verse 23, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So it's connected still to the idea of submission. And he's pointing out that there is a reward to bearing unfairness patiently. Because justice will be served. Okay, and in Revelation, when we, it, we're told that when we see God deal with the earth, we're going to say righteous and true are your judgments, O God. Nobody will be overpunished, and nobody will be underpunished. Okay, justice will be perfectly served out by a God who perfectly understands justice. But sometimes on earth, we get a little bit obsessed about our rights. And then this is, and then we got to, again, same deal. We got to be careful. He's saying if you bear with unfairness patiently, there is a reward in that. And so that's a that's a hard truth, but it's a truth of Scripture. If you bear with hard things, life is not fair. People are not fair. If you bear with that, and you don't, and you don't just get in there and get yours and, and fight for your rights, there's reward in that. Now, it's not an excuse to not pursue justice. Same, you know, same idea. We, we need to not deviate too far in either direction. 
And it's not an excuse. Uh, we're told in Proverbs, hey, you deliver people who are being led away to death. If injustice is being served, you have a responsibility to stand up and fight for justice, but not for yourself. We fight for justice in this world, but not for ourselves, because we have Christ. I'm not worried about justice for me. God will take care of that. But while I'm here, God said, hey, I want you to worry about justice for other people. So we have an obligation to walk as free men, but not to use liberty as a cloak for vice. To be submitted to our government up until the point where we can't, but to remain honorable. But most of all, to be submitted to Jesus Christ. Because he is the cornerstone. He is the central point of everything we're going to do. Of everything that should drive us and drive our response. Everything that comes after that is rooted in, are you part of what Jesus Christ is building? Or are you building something on your own? And if you're part of what Jesus Christ is building, then gates of hell won't prevail against it. No trial will overcome you. But if you step out and say, I don't want to really submit to God, then guess what? You're not going to know how to submit to government. You're not going to know how to submit to unfairness. And next week, we'll get into the really fun stuff. You don't get to know how to submit as husbands and wives. And so it all ties back into Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is central to everything else. If you want to know how to live effectively, know Jesus Christ. Know his word. Know what he wants you to do. Have a relationship with him where you ask him your questions and he gives you answers. And that's the relationship he wants to have with us. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the answers that are in it. And God, we pray that we would be people who seek out your will. Seek out your word. Who seek to know your heart. And who seek to know you. We don't want to know facts. But we do. We want to know you. The person, Jesus Christ. Who loved us enough to come and die for us. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray for a filling and an overflowing that our hearts would, would brim over with victory, that we would walk in freedom, that we would be who you have called us to be, but that we would be a part of what Jesus Christ is doing. God, we do not want to pursue our own goals. We want to let them die. We want to lay them aside. We want to look at what you are calling us to and say there's nothing more glorious than being a part of the plan of Christ. So I pray, God, if there are people here who are, who are struggling with that call, people who know that you are stirring them up, but they're resisting because they are scared to let go, people who, who feel your presence calling them in deeper, saying it's time to let go of that, it's time to move beyond that, it's time to confess that, I pray that you would stir in their hearts tonight that hunger, that hunger for you that only you can satisfy, that they would be willing to lay aside whatever it is because they are going to find true fulfillment, true satisfaction, true life in you and nowhere else. And so we pray for that, God. We pray that we'd be a church marked by victory, a church marked by power, a church marked by people who know and love you and know and love your word. So have your way with us, God. Go before us. Guide us and lead us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.